Hi, I'm Hannah Carden. I'm the teaching pastor here at Urban Village Church, and if you talk about me, you can use the pronouns she and her. And I'd like to invite you first, if you feel so moved, to close your eyes. Close your eyes and imagine your dream house. And that can mean a bunch of different stuff. A house you saw one time that you really, really loved, one you've lived in as a kid that has great memories, one you saw in a magazine, or one that is entirely of your own imagination, but just imagine it, a house. What's in front of it? What do you have to walk through to get there? What are the obstacles? What are the gifts? What does the door look like? Is it welcoming, inviting, homey? A little rough around the edges, a little intimidating. Take a little time and walk through that house. What are the places where you're most excited to go? What are the kinds of rooms that are in this house your imagination has built for you? Where will you go next? Hold it in your heart, hold it in your head, and open your eyes. We're going to return to that house in a little bit, so keep it there, keep it in your head, keep it in your heart. Um, but before we return to the house, I want to talk a little bit, live a little bit inside of this beautiful scripture passage that we just read. It's an extraordinary one, one you could read time and time again and have it say something new to you, something beautiful to you. I have always wondered why this passage about love is less popular than the First Corinthians passage about love that you've probably heard read at every wedding, right? Love is patient, love is kind. Because this one to me is just as evocative and just as loving. Let's love each other because love is from God and everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. Love, love, love. God, God, God. This repetition might be, in fact, I think the reason why it's a little less popular. <laughs> this is from the, the letter First John, probably a sermon given in a community that either John was in or that developed shortly after Don, John died that gave rise to the Gospel of John and the first, second, and third letter of John, four texts in the New Testament that all share some, some really important things in common. One is that they are incredibly poetic, just like beautiful, lovely language. If you are a poetry person, you will love these books. Another is that they're really circular, <laughs> right? They'll kind of wander in a circle around the same idea, like you're going through a labyrinth. They'll revisit it and then revisit it again in a new way and then revisit it again in a new way inching ever closer to something at the center. And they repeat a lot of what they say. They repeat a lot of the same words and same ideas, which is a technique from Hebrew poetry um, to emphasize something that's really true, something that's really important, something that is repeated. You'll often find stories in the Hebrew Bible told twice. The story of the creation, the story of Noah, the story of Joseph, because this repetition isn't because somebody forgot what they said the first time, but because they believe God wants us to underline it, that something will happen when we hear it twice and thrice and again. If you are someone who is used to Paul's linear arguments and letters from other books of the New Testament, this may be a little bit of a shock to you. But for some of you, it may be a relief. Maybe this is the way your mind and heart think. And in any case, in the midst of the poetry, there is a lesson that all of us need. 
in our hearts and our souls. If any line of this beautiful passage encapsulates it all, I would say it is this one. God is love, and those who remain in love remain in God, and God remains in them. This is how love has been perfected in us, so that we can have boldness and inclusivity and relevance, boldness on the judgment day, because we are exactly the same as God in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear expects punishment. The person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love. We love because God first loved us. This captures something essential to what John is trying to tell us in a few ways. One, that love starts with God. That any love we share here, any love we feel within ourselves for others, love as a characteristic of communities, all of that love comes from God first. Because God loved, any of the love you've ever experienced can exist. It also is convicted that being loved and loving, both of those things, being loved by God and doing acts of love, John Wright isn't about sort of like romantic, mysterious, love is a sudden thing that just happens to you. Love is a gift you get that you then act on. You do actions of love to and with your neighbors and your friends and strangers and your loved ones. That as you are loved and as you act out in love, something happens to you. You are changed. That acting in love, that coming into contact with God's perfect love can make love perfect in you. And if love should ever become perfect in you, here is how you will know it will cast out fear. You will no longer be afraid of anything. This might be counterintuitive or weird or scary in a couple of different ways. One is um, that many of us have been taught that fear should be at the heart of religious experience and especially Christian experience. That if salvation is anything, it is salvation from the things we fear. The fires of hell or being abandoned by God or being unloved. But this is not what the scriptures invite us to. The scriptures are not worried, or this one at least. John is not worried about what we are saved from. He is concerned with what we are saved he says, if fear is what is working in you, then it is not God, because God doesn't feel like being afraid. God feels like being loved, and God feels like being loved in a way that makes you courageous. God feels like being loved, not just as a state of being, but as a state that then makes you brave enough to change to look clearly at who you are and at what is, and to say, I am loved so deeply, I believe there can be more love than this. And that's, that's the second part that people find hard about this passage, is this repeated word of truth about love becoming perfect. Perfect, 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 right? The, the perfectionists in the, the community are itching already. What could it possibly mean for God's love to be perfect in us? Have you met us? Have you seen how much we mess up? 
Have you seen how we treat each other at work and in our homes and in romantic relationships? Have you seen what people on Tinder are doing? <laughs> Have you seen what people in society are doing? Have you seen what neighborhoods do to each other and what groups do to each other? And have you seen how oppression works? How dare you look at the earth, at the world and say that God can make perfect love here? Isn't that something that we have to wait for? Isn't that something that only comes at the end? How could perfect love, no matter how much God loves us, be something that we could ever know? This is a question that many have had about this passage, about what God wants for us in general, about the path of spiritual life, and especially about the thing that we are talking about all this month in our sermon series, which is sanctification. Another word for the process of sanctification, which if you don't know it, don't worry about it, I'm about to explain, is perfection. It's the idea that grace and God's Holy Spirit can work in us through our whole life, that spirituality and faith are a process and not a one-time event, that can make us fully unified with God's love. And that being saved might not just be something that happens one day in a long time from now when the whole thing ends, but something that happens now. That salvation can happen for us in this moment. That we can be different who we are than who we are. That the world can be different than it is. And that more love is possible now. I have struggled <laughs> with this idea. I have struggled uh, at length with this concept and I continue to struggle in all the days of my spiritual and devotional life with it. It was one of the first things um, that I worried about when I first became a pastor because to become a pastor in our tradition, which is deeply Wesleyan, which just means that it's um, we draw a lot of what we believe and how we live our spiritual lives from a guy who lived in the 18th century called John Wesley and his brother Charles. Um, he was a deeply imperfect guy. Uh, if you want to hear about the scandals and the stories, come on to Starting Point and I'll share them all. Um, but he had this incredible idea about perfection and sanctification that we're going to be teaching throughout the month. And, and one of the things that people had a problem with with him, one of the things that people had a problem with with this passage, is that it seems so far away from our experience. So far away from just who we are, right? We're these like broken people. Things are going wrong all the time that it seems impossible to believe. So why set that kind of goal? Why set that kind of expectation? Why put that on God? Why put that on us? I have wondered too, but I have come to believe that choosing to expect that true love is possible, choosing to expect that God has loved us so much that yes, in fact, we can become more loving. Yes, in fact, the fruits of the Spirit can be more known in us and our communities. Believing that and living your life like it's true can change the world. I have been reconvicted of that in the last month as we have seen um, this culmination of six years now, since 2014 in Ferguson, of the Black Lives Matter movement so named, but decades now, right, of the Black freedom and Black liberation struggle in the United States. As in the last month, I have seen all of a sudden so many people change so quickly in what they think is possible for our country and what we can do 
to achieve racial justice and to maybe bring real equity to our lives and our communities. We are a far way off yet perfect has not been realized and I don't see it coming uh, any day soon, but I have realized in watching people change so quickly and watching what is possible in cities and countries so quickly that I had been setting my expectations too low. Maybe out of despair or cynicism, maybe out of whiteness, I don't know, but I had begun to think, well, we can only hope for so much in my lifetime. We can only hope for so much change. This is just how things are gonna be. We'll make little inroads, we'll make little adjustments, but mostly things will remain the same. And I was wrong. <laughs> I should have believed in the bigness of God's promises and the expansiveness of who God is. I should have kept my eyes on the prize because it turns out when God says, I promise liberation, God means I promise liberation. When Jesus says, I announce that all are free, Jesus means now all are free. And that if God has said this can be what justice is in the world, who am I to make it smaller with my own doubt, to make it smaller with my own frustration? I must believe that things can be greater, that things can change more, that love can be more realized than reality makes me think is possible. Wesley, as we were talking about, who had this idea of perfection both in ourselves and in the world, received a lot of the same doubts that I've named about this passage and about his stuff when he first introduced his idea of a threefold grace of grace working itself out in our spiritual lives so profoundly and wonderfully that you needed multiple names for it. Grace in and of itself, grace is simply an unearned gift. Grace is the reality that because of God, we experience all kinds of things in our lives as gifts that we did not do, cannot do anything to get because of who God is. Rain on your face, love in your heart, how sugar tastes. <laughs> These are gifts, and God has simply given them freely. You cannot earn them. They are. Grace describes anything that works in this way. And all Christians believe in some form of grace working itself out in our lives as a gift to us, that all things, as John says, start with God's love and start with God's grace. But where Wesley took it was one level deeper. And he said there are three kinds of grace, and if we are aware of all of them, they might form our spiritual life and spiritual direction as people and as communities. The first, and here I'm going to take you back to that house you imagined at the beginning. Get that house in your head. The first is what Wesley called provenient grace, but because that's a word we don't use anymore, it basically means preparing, preparatory grace. I'm going to call it porch grace. If the house is the house of faith, the house of God's wonders, Wesley was convicted that grace existed even on the porch, even in the yard where you had the barbecue, which is to say nothing more and nothing less than whether or not you know God, whether or not you use the fancy words, whether or not you call yourself a Christian. If what we say about God is true, then God's grace has done a good work in you. By virtue simply of being, of being created, every person, everything, every part of this creation is filled with God's grace, is a miracle 
by virtue of existing. And because God's grace comes first, there is no part of creation that lacks it. Porch grace is the conviction that grace is everywhere, that it can reach us through anything, and that whether or not we call ourselves believers, grace is at work in our lives. The second flavor of grace, and we're going to get a Sunday devoted to each of these, so if you're really curious, just stay tuned for July, is uh, called justifying grace. And we call that walking through the door, walking through the door. Justifying grace is the grace that says, I see a gap between who I am and who I want to be, between what the world is and what I believe the world can be. I see a gap in myself, harms I have caused, things I can't do, ways I can't be. And I believe that only God can fill that gap. Opening the door is inviting God in and saying, God, only by your grace can I be justified. Only by your grace can I be changed. Only by your grace can things be different. This is the kind of grace that basically every flavor of Christian, every kind of Christian will talk about. Um, and we all talk about it in different ways, right? Being converted, being born again, having new life and regeneration, having the spirit in your life. It's about a moment or a series of moments when you invite in God to do new work in you, when you recognize that something is happening and that allows something miraculous to occur. Where we differ as believers in sanctification from many um, forms of Christianity is that we don't believe that justifying grace, that belief um, in Jesus or love of Jesus or knowledge of God is an on-off switch that you only do one time in your life. Justifying grace is really important, right? It's, it's critical to a life of faith, that awareness, that knowledge, that invitation, but it's not the end of the story. You never as a Christian are fully baked. You never as a follower of God are someone who's figured it all out and you're done now. And that is what it means to say that sanctifying grace, this third form of grace, is the grace of exploring this household of faith. That because of who God is, because of how big God is, because of how amazing creation is, there is always another room that you have yet to explore. There's always another floor to that house in which you might become a more refined and committed version of someone who has been so loved by God that love can be known through you and through your life. That your devotionals and your prayers, your relationships, your parental relationships, your romantic relationships, your neighbor relationships, your communal relationships, your neighborhood, your country, your world, can always be becoming closer and closer to the perfection and the truth that is God's love in the world and what God has promised and invited us to. It's an enormous gift to believe that we grow all the time, that we never have to be right about anything, because if we love God, we should be figuring out all the time places where we messed up. And then we can say, good thing I'm fully beloved by God and grace exists and I can be accountable. I can look at the places where I have fallen short and I can look at them with bravery and courageousness because God loves me and God loves the world so much that I can love the world enough to grow and to change. And it won't destroy me. It will in fact be a gift. 
but sanctification leads us again to this question, which is how far does it go? <laughs> if I'm being sanctified all the time, do I ever get fully sanctified? For Wesley and for John, they had to answer the question, yes. At some point, you most people this doesn't happen to, or it doesn't happen right away, or you might never know when it happens. But for most people, you must hope that there can be a time when you will become perfect with God's love. Because it then changes the rest of the spiritual process for you. It makes you braver about prayer and braver about devotionals and braver about acting and doing things and acting out of love because you believe that God can actually do miracles and do what God has promised. And it's rough. You may be, we may be in all different places about whether we can fully believe that and fully take that in. But I have found really helpful in believing it a quote that I'm going to grab and reach to you, read to you. Um, and this is from the work of Black feminist scholar Bell Hooks, who many of you may know and have read, um, who works at Berea College and who is convicted in the way that she connects spirituality, social change, personal transformation towards self-love interpersonal transformation towards love, and then community transformation towards love and away from domination. And I had read her and loved her for years, but I, I read her first before I really knew a lot about the Bible. And I returned to her this week and realized that she had talked about just this problem, just this problem with just this passage, First John. And so I wanted to read this to you. Faith is what enables us to move past fear. She says, fear is the barrier. Fear is the reason that you don't wanna believe that love can be real in your life, that you don't wanna believe that you are fully loved, that you don't wanna believe that love between you and a partner or a friend and a neighbor can be real, that you don't wanna believe that our country could be led by an ethic of love instead of an ethic of fear and hatred. Fear is the barrier and faith is what enables us to move past fear. We can collectively regain our faith in the transformative power of love by cultivating courage. The strength to stand up for what we believe in to be accountable, both in word and deed, because we will not be afraid if they do not match because we believe that they can match better. I am especially fond, Hooks says, of the biblical passage in the first epistle of John, which tells us, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. From childhood on, this passage has spoken to me. I was fascinated by the repeated use of the word perfect. For some time, I thought of this word only in relation to being without fault or defect. Taught to believe that this understanding of what it means to be perfect was always out of human reach that we were of necessity essentially human because we were not perfect, but were always bound by the mystery of the body. By our limitations, this call to know a perfect love disturbed me. It seemed a worthy calling, but impossible. That is, until I looked for a deeper, more complex understanding of the word perfect and found a definition emphasizing the will to refine. Suddenly, my passage was illuminated. Love as a process that has been refined, alchemically altered as it moves from state to state, is that perfect love that can cast out fear. As we love, fear necessarily leaves. 
wisdom from age to age, as John was trying to tell us in the first century, as Wesley was trying to tell us in the 18th, as Hooks has tried to tell us in the 21st. When we embrace our belovedness and begin to act on love, to do acts of love, it is that love that will change us. That as we abide in love and abide in God and God abides in us, yes, more love will become possible than we ever believed. More grace will become possible than reality has taught us to want. We can engage in a practice of hope that says that God's promises are real, that God's grace is for us, and that we who believe we are so loved as God says, can then believe that we can become as loving as God has invited us to be. And until that day comes, we will inch forward together, act of love by act of love, act of awareness by act of awareness, act of failure by act of failure, Believing the whole time that because it is the grace of God that powers us, because it is the love of God that invites us, perfection may yet be attainable and we may be spurred on by that knowledge. In Jesus' name, we give thanks for this miracle, however unbelievable it may be. Amen. <laughs>